you want to contribute. I mean, that's sort of the dream of the refugee and the immigrant. And that's the part that drives me crazy about all this vilifying all the time of immigrants and refugees as these like sketchy characters that are just trying to use you. It's like, look around. These are the people that are adding so much to the community. Hi, I'm Neil Katyal, and welcome to Courtside, a podcast about the Supreme Court and what it means to you. I've argued 50 cases at the Supreme Court and served as the federal government's top courtroom lawyer. But I want the court to come alive for you. Each week, I discuss a single Supreme Court case with one guest, someone who's not a lawyer and who can translate the case into plain English. Today's guest is my dear friend, Regina Spector, a brilliant musician and one of the most lovely people I have ever met. A reminder that all my episodes are posted over at neilcatial.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff. You can also support the show there or sign up for free so that each episode of Courtside lands right in your email. That's neilcatial.substack.com. On my Substack each week, you'll get access as a subscriber to all sorts of information about the case. I've summarized the case in a three-pager, abridged the actual text of the decision, and provided the full decision. All of that is available to you as a paid subscriber. I'm donating all my profits to charity, but production of this thing costs quite a bit, and I'm not running any ads at all on this podcast. We are entirely listener-supported, so please do sign up at neilcatial.substack.com. Today, I'm joined by Regina Spector, one of the handful of greatest musicians alive, to discuss the 2018 case of Hawaii versus Trump, which was about Donald Trump's Muslim and refugee ban. Regina has moved me to no end for two decades now, and most days of most weeks, as she knows, I play her song, Samson, to start my day. Regina is also herself a refugee, as she'll explain later in the episode. Regina, I'm so excited to sit down with you and discuss one of the most serious decisions the Supreme Court has made in our lifetimes, Trump versus Hawaii. Wow. I don't know what to do with that introduction, but (laughs) thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the case, Trump versus Hawaii, is a 2018 case, and it found that President Trump's Muslim ban was constitutional. And fair warning, I argued this case in the United States Supreme Court and lost it five to four. It was my hardest loss. And before we get into the court's decision, I just want to briefly sketch out the lead up to the decision. What was involved? What were the facts? What was the question before the court? So the case really begins with the 2016 presidential campaign where Donald Trump peddled in xenophobic rhetoric. So once he said to his supporters, quote, Islam hates us, and he said, Quote, we can't allow people coming into this country who have this hatred of the United States. And on December 7th, 2015, Donald Trump issued a formal statement calling for a, quote, total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. So if we were to fast forward to 2017 and that very first week of Trump's inauguration, you you might remember those scenes at the airports when he had issued this Muslim ban. He instructed the Department of Homeland Security, to conduct a worldwide review and determine which countries pose terrorist-related threats. And not surprisingly, the countries on the list were all majority Muslim. So Donald Trump issues this executive order to ban immigration from these states. 
uh, from these nations. And he says that he has the authority to do that as the president. And that's immediately challenged in court, travel ban one, and it's struck down. And then Donald Trump replaces it with travel ban number two, which was basically the same as travel ban number one. We went right into court and argued that, got that struck down. Donald Trump then kind of waked out, said, see you in court, accused these judges of being fake judges and the like, and vowed to bring that case to the Supreme Court. So I was planning to argue that case. But two weeks before the oral argument, Donald Trump flinched and pulled back travel ban two and replaced it with another travel ban, travel ban number three. Now, this one was different. It added the country of Chad, which I think President Trump thought was some guy, um, but it also added North Korea, because, Regina, as you know, we have an overwhelming immigration problem with North yes. Korea. Um, <laughs> and it added uh, about 100 people from Venezuela. Not clear that any of them wanted to come to the United States anyway, but that was the case that went to the Supreme Court. And three American citizens with family in these countries sued the Trump administration, as did the state of Hawaii. And they said that the president didn't have the power to do this and that it violated the Constitution's guarantee of religious freedom. And so that's what lands at the United States Supreme Court. And in a five to four bitterly divided decision, the Supreme Court says Donald Trump can do this, with Chief Justice John Roberts writing the majority opinion. So, um, Regina, you're so much better at speaking in plain English than I am, since I'm <laughs> infected by being a lawyer. Um, what does the Chief Justice say in this opinion? What's he saying? Well, he's basically saying that, you know, that it's legal, it's constitutional. And and what's really interesting is that, um, you know, I am actually, I'm fascinated by your brain. I'm fascinated by the incredible clarity that you do have when you explain things, because you're the only one in the world that I ever understand any of these issues from. It's, it's very important for us, the people, to have that kind of translation. I end up a lot of the time sort of panning out, so far out. Of course, society is kept from chaos and destruction by a thin thread of laws that govern us, that keep us from being uh, in just complete, complete mess and, and uh, you know, but just because something is legal or is deemed legal or somebody makes a law about it does not mean that it's moral. And there is this difference where some laws are very, very moral and they keep us on track and they're reflective of our ideals to have a fair and just place. And the United States of America is, you know, to a lot of us, it's this beacon, you know, of, of hope. It's one of the fairer places in the world. And that's why people keep coming here, keep wishing to come here, because it is, of what's out there, still the best. It really is. And... At the same time, uh, uh, these kinds of things, these these uh, decisions, you know, when somebody says, I can actually, you know, they decide, let's say, they, they're speaking this hateful rhetoric about Muslims all the way up until the election. 
And then they sort of pad this law and in some layers of reality where there are hostile people, right, out there who want to come in, who want to sort of hide among refugees and are hostile and do want to destroy the American way of life. And they so happen to uh, pick uh, Muslim countries, you know, and they're not, you know, I mean, look at what happened January 6th. That was us. That was the Americans. That was internal terrorism. And that was uh, people that were American people that were really the biggest threat. I, that's the biggest terrorism that I've seen in this country since September 11th. They came in and took over the Capitol building and our legally chosen representatives had to be hidden because they, I mean, they were threatening the vice president's life. They were threatening the speaker of the house life. And this was domestic terrorists. But to go on the campaign and to constantly spew this anti-Islamic um, rhetoric and then to sort of pad something in this in this way that bans people um, and it, it doesn't overtly ban them in the in the religious way so it's kind of hidden yeah. uh, and so but we all know it's like it's like the emperor's new clothes. It's like we all can see it. It's obviously directed towards Muslims. But, you know, I think that the dissents, the two dissents from it, they okay, are well, speaking truth. On. Let, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah let, me, gonna... let me pause you on the dissents. So first, <laughs> I just want to pick up on this beautiful statement you made about how there's a distinction between what's moral and what's legal. And sometimes actually the law does both. Like I think about the First Amendment issue that's here in this case. Like the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law establishing a religion. And the whole idea of that, because back to our founders, that you know, you can land on America's shores and we don't care who you pray to. Like that's part of our guarantees for Americans and for people coming here that we don't discriminate against them on the basis of religion. And then you've got this Muslim ban, which you're absolutely right. It doesn't say Muslim ban in it. It uses other <laughs> words, more neutral words. And, you know, at the Supreme Court, I basically, I thought I had the killer answer to that because, you know, the government, Trump was saying, look, it doesn't say Muslim in it. And I said, well, but you have to read behind the text of the uh, order. So, like I said, if the president says on Monday, I hate Jewish people. And on Tuesday, he bans immigration from Israel. I don't think on Wednesday he can defend it by saying, well, it only says Israel in it. It doesn't say Jewish people. I mean, right. you know, there's a common sense kind of notion to what's going on, but yet the court just blew past that. And that's what then sets up these dissents, these disagreements, where Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer are saying, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, with respect, we disagree. So what's happening there in those dissents? Well, in the Sonia Sotomayor dissent, she's basically saying, look, you're undermining the very first principle that we have, the, the First Amendment. This is a place where we guarantee people freedom of religion, and you're banning people from Muslim countries. So you're banning that religion, right? Did I understand it right? You got it. Exactly. Okay. 
So one of the things that she really singled out is she said, look, this case has a lot of similarities to Korematsu versus United States. That's this 1944 Supreme Court case, one of the most heinous ones ever, which allowed the internment of over 100,000 Japanese Americans just on the basis of their race, nothing else. And so uh, Justice Otomiro is trying to draw a parallel there, right? Yeah. And you know what else is kind of interesting? It's like when I was reading that, I actually was so struck by this irony. And maybe it's just part of our condition, you know, is that so this is probably uh, I'm bad at math, but around 80 years later that they officially struck down this horrendous racist decision, you know, when uh, you, you can't even believe that, okay, they, they rounded up Japanese Americans because they thought that they were secretly still going to be part of Japan and we were at war, you know, with, with Japan and World War II. And so they were somehow these, even though they lived here and they had immigrated here and, and no matter what their connection and love of America was, they were just all of a sudden, boom, treated like some kind of a sleeper cell and these families that had been surrounded by neighborhoods of and just lived here were rounded up and isolated and i i know people whose uh, whose grandparents and parents went through that and it's this extremely painful thing because first of all i think any refugee or immigrant already feels their otherness so much then people who don't look like the majority of people in the country that they immigrated to, it makes them feel so unsafe and so extra other. And it's so painful. Then just this, this idea that, that, you know, you, you come somewhere and you, you, you love it. You want to contribute. I mean, that's sort of the dream of the refugee and the immigrant. And that's the part that drives me crazy about all this vilifying all the time of immigrants and refugees as these like sketchy characters that are just trying to use you. It's like, look around. These are the people that are adding so much to the community. They're working so hard, oftentimes much harder than someone who is born here because they have to. And because they also, they're trying to help their family sort of catch up. And, and have their children have these opportunities they, that, that they never had. And all of a sudden you undermine all that trust and all of that they've put into the community and you just throw them away. But the idea that they, they used this absolutely illegal, crazy situation that is, you know, basically a mirror reflection of that one to officially strike down, you know, that one. And then there's that they don't understand the blindness that they're making this same decision 80 years later. And now a Supreme Court in, an, in another 80 years is going to look back on this and say that was absolutely illegal and we're, we're ashamed and we shouldn't have done that. And they're not making that decision in the moment. They're having that same blindness and that same racism and that same prejudice, um, you know, in 2018. 
And I love that answer because you're basically going beyond the law to talk about the human impact of that decision, like that Korematsu decision. And, you know, Korematsu was a six to three decision by the Supreme Court. And when I went to law school, everyone blamed the court, you know, for being so horrendous. And when I was the federal government's top courtroom lawyer in 2010 and 2011, I went and I pulled the briefs and the arguments and everything that we said to the Supreme Court back in World War II to justify the internment of Japanese Americans. And I realized that basically the federal government had lied to the Supreme Court and said that um, there was a need to do this when all the intelligence reports said there was no need whatsoever. Even like J. Edgar Hoover, who's no fan of civil liberties, said this was just racist and there was no reason to do this for national security. So I confessed error back in 2011. I wrote a whole statement and said that the government had lied to the Supreme Court. And I remember when I went to I went to Hawaii to talk about it um, in a public forum with the Japanese American um, uh, with the Japanese American group and uh, about 600 people in the audience. And I started to tell this story. And this woman raises her hand and she says, "I just want to tell you that." I first learned about the Japanese-American internment at school, and I came home from high school and told my mom, and she got a strange look on her face. And then she said you know, da- to her daughter, you were actually interned, you just don't remember it, and, uh, and we don't talk about it. And the reason for that is there was so much shame that these folks felt about being interned. And then person after person in that audience raised their hand and said similar stories about how they first learned about the internment in school, even though their parents were themselves, they had actually been internees. And then the most moving thing, Regina, happened. And someone said, yes, same thing happened to me, except my father was actually volunteered to go and fight in World War II against the enemy while his wife and kid was interned. And that story is true. There's so many people in Hawaii today whose uh, grandparents fought for the United States at the very oh. same time as their family was being interned. Um, and um, it's just so human, this stuff. And, you know, it gets you know, the, the legal stuff is important, but at the core of this is all just families being separated, which is what Trump did with the Muslim ban or in the uh, that Japanese-American thing, the same kind of situation. And that's why I think the law is so important and why like, what you're in doing here on this podcast is important in explaining to people, hey, this has a real human impact. A lot of the time, you know, when I think about politicians, I really try very, very hard to have empathy, you know, because I think about like, um, well, you don't fall into that category, Neil, because you are a part of these huge decisions and you have this monumental responsibility on your shoulders, right? And, and you do the best you can with it. But most of us, you know, we're, we're all, all of us humans, we don't have, um, this this great foresight we don't know how our choices and our decisions are going to impact the future but most of us you know um our our decisions they might impact um you know our our children negatively they might impact our friends and family maybe our 
our coworkers, our community, but politicians, you know, people who, and, and, you know, people who make sort of laws at that high level, their decisions can impact, you know, the planet permanently, you know, sometimes they, they could, uh, their, a decision can, uh, can have a species go extinct. And I think about that because I do try to separate sort of in my, in, within myself that politician or that lawmaker who is trying to do the best they can, but they make a mistake, right? Because they can't yeah. see the future. And you sort of try to think like, well, but was, was, was this person like a hateful, you know, trying to, like, like trying to willfully spread prejudice person or did they have blind spots? And you sort of try very hard, at least I do, try really hard to sort of parcel it out. Like I think, you know, FDR did a tremendous amount of great things for America. I mean, he was president during a very difficult time. He helped people climb out of depression and all this stuff. At the same time, his immigration policies and what happened during World War II and in the lead up to World War II and during was a really crazy arc, especially for Jewish people. You know, he, I, I, I remember reading that kind of rhetoric about Jews trying to flee, you know, Nazi Germany and, you know, them basically saying, I think it was FDR saying that you know, but we have to be careful who we take in because they are still Germans and, and we don't know who are spies. And these are people who are being exterminated trying to flee and putting quotas or, or turning away ships of refugees after the war. And those ships capsized literally children and women who survived concentration camps. That blood is on FDR's hands. But when I think of him as a human i think this person made terrible mistakes and they have to bear that legacy of oh my god i on my hands is the blood of these people and i would never want that kind of responsibility ever because i don't think i would know what to do with that kind of responsibility but when i although think regina i think that's like exactly the type of person you want to have that responsibility someone who's got doubt about it and who is mm -hmm. asking themselves at every turn is this the right decision yeah you know i i came up with this idea just yesterday and it is probably the dumbest idea in the world but i thought you know if all of our Supreme Court judges and all of our top politicians and monarchs of the world had to spend 30 minutes a day in the labor and delivery unit. And all they had to do was just for, for 30 minutes straight, they would just get handed these tiny brand new babies that came into the world and just hold them and look into their faces. For 30 minutes a day that that they would make completely different decisions and they would it would wake them up so that each one of these is a is a life striving for life striving for a future and they would really have a different connection it's just that they're so separated from real life a lot of them and they're so 
they really just get lost on the way. They lose that moral compass. And I have no idea how to, how to keep them attached to it. Some of them naturally have it. Like I really, when I was in the presence of the Obamas, I really felt it. Now, of course, history will show that just like any other human being, you know, Barack Obama made mistakes because he's a human being. He's not a psychic that I know of, but you feel the intention of the person. You feel that they, they are trying to do the best. Absolutely. And I love your idea and your uh, solution. It's creative. It's brilliant. It's total Regina Spector. <laughs> I have to say, I'm a little worried about Donald Trump holding a baby, um, but uh, but okay. <laughs> you know, there are different ways to build that connection. And another way is, of course, through storytelling and through, you know, actually explaining what someone is about. And so, you know, like it's much easier to enact a Muslim ban if you in a refugee ban, if you don't know any refugees. And, you know, that's why when I was putting this episode together, I really thought of you because you really do have a personal connection to this decision. You fled the Soviet Union um, as a Jewish refugee. I think you were nine years old, if I recall. Yes. Yeah. And you, you know, bounced around Europe first and then settled in the Bronx. And could you tell us a little about that experience and what was that? situation you were facing in the Soviet Union, and what was it like to come to the United States and be handed these constitutional protections after being subject to so much in the Soviet Union? You know, I mean, um, for those out there who might not realize it, in the Soviet Union, all religion was illegal. So in that way, we were kind of equal in our persecution. <laughs> but what was very overt and not hidden was the anti-Semitism. And in some ways, interestingly enough, because this world is that ironic, in some ways, maybe even the only reason why Jews even survive in the Soviet Union with no cultural holidays or traditions to keep them going is the anti-Semitism. Because it was so bad, Jews ended up, you know, becoming friends and banding together and marrying each other and having these Jewish children because they were just so persecuted. Now, now there were all these quotas and, you know, tremendous amount of jobs wouldn't take Jews, tremendous amount of schools wouldn't take Jews, or they might, you had to be like the best in your class to get in. So this funny thing got created too, where people really worked so hard. A lot of them ended up kind of forcibly achieving a lot through this persecution because you literally couldn't get a job or couldn't get into places unless you were the best of the best of the best because that's the only way you would get anywhere. And my parents, you know, during the time that I lived, I felt all of that fear around everything because on my grandparents' level, you know, people were taken away, people were disappeared. So my parents grew up just surrounded by World War II. I grew up surrounded by World War II. I grew up knowing that I wasn't going to get certain to, into certain schools. I wasn't going to get into certain jobs. People could say, you know, kike to me all day long. They could, they could say those things. It was just, it was in the, it was in the culture. It was in, it was like water. It was just around you. The anti-Semitism was around you. What's interesting is that in Russia, 
everybody could see that my parents were Jewish. They could just look at their face and see it. And it's so funny because when I came to New York, I realized it was just that particular people is tuned in to you so physically because mm -hmm. I was always, you know, when I was in the Bronx, everybody thought I was, I was Irish and they'd be like, look at those Irish blue eyes. <laughs> and I'd be like, cool. Um, but, but, um, you know, it just shows just this weird perspective that people who have a certain, have, have it out for you, how tuned yeah. in they get into you, you know, and, and really as soon as, as soon as there were these two waves of immigration, so a Russian Jewish immigration, one happened very briefly and then closed back down in the seventies. And my husband, Jack came through that. He was a baby. I just want to add one thing is that the thing that kind of when I think on all of this, the thing that shocks me the most is that the Soviet Russia that I was leaving was more open and more free than that. I, I cannot even stretch my mind enough to, to grasp where it ended up because it just really didn't feel like it was possible. It just felt like we were right on the precipice, like we were leaving right in the moment that it was all gonna fall apart. And then it did. We watched it from our little TV in the Bronx, you know, and we thought, okay, finally, you know, these people are going to get some, some real freedom, some real laws, some real protection, something, you know, and boom. The, the flip that it went into something so extreme is, is I just don't understand it. It's very difficult for me to actually grasp. Thanks for listening to Courtside. You will have noticed that there aren't any ads on Courtside. That's because Courtside is entirely listener supported. You can support the show at neilkatyal.substack.com and come back next week. Stop over at neilkatyal.substack.com to support the show, and there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and some bonus material. And so you can sign up so you don't miss anything. Yeah, I completely hear you. And, you know, I think my question to you is, do you have a similar view of the United States now? Um, you know, you've read Trump versus Hawaii. You've seen what it said about religious freedom, and yet, you know, your parents and you came here for religious freedom. I mean, when you read the decision as a religious refugee, how did it make you feel, Regina? Well, it's sort of, you know, and it has been a kind of slow awakening for me in general. And I think for many refugees that you, when you come as a refugee, the kind of love or an immigrant, the kind of love that you have for your new home it's so huge and overwhelming that it's actually very difficult for you to listen to people criticize it or even be objective about it because you love it so much. That's something that people don't realize maybe about refugees and immigrants is that we're so filled with gratitude, most of us, that it's, it's, and this is the holy grail, you know, because like when we came here and I saw for the first time people walking around the city and they were wearing a kippah or they were wearing a Jewish star around their neck or they were wearing, you know, any kind of religious garb. I was just, I was just 
freaking out because I thought, my God, they're just doing it. They're just out there. It felt like a miracle. I mean, I would see little Jewish boys with their kippahs and their peas and their tzitzit, and I would just cry as a 10-year-old because it was just a sight. I just could not believe it. Now, mind you, even prior, even separate from this refugee ban, when I walk around New York now, I worry about them because hate crime against those same Jewish dressed kids is up to 100%. So these things changed even in my own lifetime. So what felt like this unbelievable miracle to me, you know, maybe the window is closed on that. Maybe, maybe it's not anymore. And sort of in the same way that you said about like, how did it make you feel? Well, you know, in Germany, Germany was a very open place. It was a very liberal place. And then, and it was a democracy. And then all the things that led up to the nightmare of mm-hmm. this World War II extermination camps, Hitler's rise to power, all that stuff, it was all legal. That happened in a democracy. Laws changed. It was, it was brought in absolutely legally. It wasn't like a band of these like crazy people that disregarded the laws. It changed. They changed the laws. And so in that way, when I saw that, when I saw that kind of in the lead up to that hateful rhetoric, and then when I saw that decision, that insane decision actually upheld, it made me kind of feel very cold in that I thought, okay, it's, there is no magical place on earth that is protected. There, there are only these moments in history where sanity and morality and enlightenment and connection and love prevail. And then if you do have people like that get into power who fuel the embers of darkness and hate and, and blame and this sort of boogeyman, uh, this other you know, the stranger. And no matter what holy books tell you, welcome the stranger. You know, the same people that, you know, have decided that all of a sudden we're a Christian nation, right? And they've kicked everybody else out, even though the whole First Amendment is like all about not that. Be the land that is free for everybody. They want to welcome the stranger. They want to be uh, acknowledged that they were built you know, people go and rewrite history. They decide this is a Christian nation, you know, and it's like, this is a very, this is a melting pot nation. It was built by so many people. It was built in, in brutal ways. There was slavery involved. There were, it, there's, there's a, a lot of things that are part of this nation that are difficult, right? But in the same time, it's, it's the one of the most beautiful free places in the world. And that's why people are drawn to it still all the time. Every day they dream of coming here. And at the same time, we realize, oh, wow, it's really vulnerable, much more vulnerable. I didn't realize that I could just, you know, just write songs and just be somebody's daughter and just be somebody's mother and just be somebody's wife and not have to think about what goes on outside of, 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 
you know, in Washington. Like I'm not mm-hmm. built, you know, naturally yeah. to think about laws and and these these things that are so concrete. I'm much more like vague and and out there, but I have to pull myself in and I have to remember like, you know, the reason I got here is because a lot of people went to protests. A lot of people wrote to their congressmen and their senators and their their representatives. And a lot of people went door to door. And a lot of people um they right. they they really made these decisions to be very present and very vocal about issues. And so I get to be here because people fought for me to be here. And I want to, with all my heart, fight to keep this country as on track with its ideals, with its North Star, with its, you know, moral compass as I can. I don't want to be asleep at the wheel. And that struggle, Regina, is like the same thing I go through, everything. You know, I've often said, like, I think it takes an immigrant to truly love this country because, like, you know what it's like on the other side. And so my parents and I, we've always had those views, like, of how America's the greatest country. And at the same time, you have to force yourself to look at some of the ugly warts, and they're really ugly sometimes, you know, massive things like slavery or smaller things like, but really important things like the incarceration state today. So it's kind of a constant struggle to try and understand what the country's about, what it could be. Yes. And I know we're running out of time, but I just want to ask you kind of three final questions, um, really more about your creative process and just switch gears for a bit. Because I know you often say, like, you don't believe there's a single meaning behind a song and you write about really some of the biggest topics around love, death, life, time. (laughs) Um, But you keep saying that the meaning is in the listener, not in the song itself. And I have to say, when I, you know, and I, as I said, I listen to music almost every day. I'm always trying to ask, what do you mean by it more than what do I hear in it? Um, so well, I'm that's curious, because like, you're a caring person. You think <laughs> about the other. Yeah, you know, that's that's part of it. It's that that desire for understanding other people and having that connection. That that's actually what you're experiencing is care. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Possibly. I mean, and then on this connection thing, I mean, I've now been privileged to see you many dozen times. And, you know, most of the time it's in the very back of the venue and uh, and the like. And I'm struck by, it doesn't matter where I'm sitting. I could be in the front, I could be in the back, but you are so able to break the gap between the audience and yourself, just the physical distance. And I don't, it's something magic that you do. You make people feel like they're up there with you. And how do you do that? Wow. That, well, you know, I have to say, and I, I really do, I really do think that it has everything to do with them because I, especially after this pandemic and being away from playing and that during the pandemic sort of going through the experience of losing my my dad my papa and and when i came back to play music with people see i had to i wanted to say with people and i thought that's wrong because it's for people but i really do feel like it's a with and i wonder if 
you or anyone who comes to the shows realizes how much um how much I need it and how much it gives me because I really do feel like so um just so very uh gifted by that togetherness and you know when you make when you make art especially if you write you know strange little songs and you just and as soon as you're done you want to play them for people and you get to actually do that you know it's it's such a magical experience and there's so much love in those rooms that i just feel at home and i and i so so i don't feel like i'm doing anything i actually feel like the audience does it and I don't know mm. why, but I'm just grateful, you know, <laughs> I don't know why they do I mean, it, but I just feel like I walk out and I feel this, oh, these open hearts, you know, and these like very loving, open minds. And what a, you know, what a privilege then to just be with, with that. Yeah. And I, I think as an audience member, we really do feel it. I mean, I was privileged to be at your Carnegie Hall show, which was, I think, your first concert after your papa died. And uh, you felt it. You talked about it. And it was like, we felt all next to you. I mean, you know, I was sitting next to our mutual friend, Dustin Yellen, and we we're both tearing up. So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, you know, it, it, that concert in particular was so hard because it had just been such a beacon of when he was very sick that, that it was like this marker, you know, where it was like we were trying to figure out, well, he's going to go to the concert, but he's going to sit here. Oh, and now he's in, now he's so weak that instead he'll sit here or, well, it just kept, the goalposts kept changing and it was like this yeah. race, this race to this particular concert, to this particular venue that was so meaningful to us all because, you know, every free uh, cent that, <laughs> that was not assigned for like shelter or food would go towards these Carnegie Hall tickets because my parents just loved music, classical music, and they would they imbued me with that. And, and we would just, do that as a family and it was just this tradition and we go many many times a year and we would sit all the way up high in what the french called paradise um and you know and it was just it's just burned into me this this feeling of being there with my parents and to be there and to play there my own show for the first time and to not have him there was just it was like an extension of the Shiva, really. Um, but it was, that was another example where I just felt like every single person in that room, they were just feeling it with me. And it's so, I think so much of this life is pretense. And some of it, you know, it serves us well. Like it's good to have etiquette at a table. It's nice not to watch somebody just pick up their food with their hands and lick them all over and be gross. You know, it's, there's a reason why we have forks and knives and, and, you know, uh, napkins. And we all appreciate that as a society, right? It's, it's nice to have certain kind of decorum. And, and, you know, when I went 
thanks to you, my one and only chance to be in the Supreme Court, I really, I really felt the gravitas of that. And I really felt how incredible to have this, this, um, decorum. You know, it does a lot to like center the mind and be like, this is, this is a high important place. And at the same time, it's so important to have places where all of that can drop. And we could just be so open in ourselves. And at the same time, you know, now, just with all these stories coming out, even about the Supreme Court, you start to think, okay, well, there, even the moments of gravitas, how much of that is real? Or how much of that is just we all wanted to collectively pretend that there were some places that were sacred enough to be these, these places of true honorable decisions and you know they're they're not and this case that you lost that you tried to to fight and i'm so i'm so amazed by you and i'm so um actually it's so weird because i feel so proud of you even though i had nothing to do with it <laughs> it's a, it's a kind of proud that i'm i'm glad that there are people there on the front line standing up to this but definitely this case for me and really eroded a tremendous amount of that, um, that faith in the, in the decorum. And, you know, and I mm. think on stage, it's still that place where we could actually, um, because nothing's at stake, really. That's the thing. It's like, except that we decide to be there together. I'm on stage and whoever's in the audience and nothing's at stake, except it, the only thing at stake is, be untrue and just be really there if we're really there together we've done it and it could be it could be a good night or it could be a bad night it could be i could be i could be having the hardest emotional time or i could be flying in you for it but as long as we're really i'm really really there and i really show up kind of that's that i feel like that um maybe that's the feeling that i get is that everybody's just so truly there and i feel that honesty like through their hearts i felt it hmm. in carnegie and i i feel it at every show it's just it's it's beautiful and i have to say anything i have ever done you have always been a part because your music does inspire me so deeply um and i, I can't thank you enough for it you are just a magnificent artist, person, thinker, friend. Um, I can't thank you enough for spending some time uh, with me today to talk about Hawaii versus Trump and everything else. Thank you so much, Neil. And, and uh, yeah, thank you for doing all you do. And thank you so much for inviting me on this podcast. It's really oh. special to talk about this. And I, I, I definitely... Um, I'm very conscious that like refugees and immigrants were not like this monolithic entity. We all have these different perspectives. So it's very hard to sort of represent a group. And, and I just, but I really appreciate getting the chance to talk to you about my experience with, as being a refugee and, and how much I care and love America and so many of us do and, and what these kinds of decisions, what they mean to us as far as uh, shaking our confidence, but also this resolve to fight harder and protect other people who are on their way here. They're, they maybe didn't make it here just yet, but they're, 
They're going to come here and they're going to do great things. Stop over at neilcatial.substack.com to support the show. And there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and bonus material. And you can sign up so you don't miss anything. That's neilkatyal.substack.com. N-E-A-L-K-A-T-Y-A-L.substack.com. The music for the show was composed by the artists Dawson Hollow and Ronnie Barhadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson and Tyler Morissette at Voltage. This is Neil Katyal. Thank you for listening, and I'll have a new episode of Courtside for you next week.